welcome to The Network Effect, the show where each week we open up our little black book and bring you some of the best entrepreneurs, investors, and professionals from around the world who will share with you their experience and expertise in scaling businesses into new markets. Whether you're an existing large uh, corporation dealing with complex multinational projects or you're a fast-growing startup um, just looking to explore entering into new markets, uh, tapping into the support of others can very often be the difference between success and heading down a path of difficult and expensive mistakes. We've built a business off the back of the principle of the network effect, where each new member and client increases the value of the network for all members. And we've been able to use that network to scale companies into every corner of the globe. And now we'd like you to be part of that network. So if collaborating with partners from around the world sounds like the right strategy for your growth plans, then stay tuned and let's get connected. And we're live. Thank you so much for joining episode six of The Network Effect. Asma Zane, good to have you both here. Great to be here once again. It's episode six already. It's flown by. I know, exactly. Uh, feels like it's taken a long time with all the work that goes into the show. But yeah, only a quick six weeks. I thought before we jump into the rest of it, we've, we've done five full episodes now, so it sounds like a good round number. It'd be great just to maybe get your guys' thoughts on how it's been. Have, have we met your expectations for the show? or yeah. Expectations to be honest. I mean, I, I actually can't believe the level of response. I mean, I'm sometimes you know, I, I get shocked by the feedback we get and the level of feedback that we're getting. Um, po positive yeah, feedback, yeah. obviously. And I think for me, you know, we kind of set this, uh, we kind of set out to do this show on the basis that we wanted to really showcase in, uh, inspirational people. We wanted to look at entrepreneurial journeys, successful people. We wanted to, um, you know, kind of inspire the next generation of leaders. And uh, it's actually done more than that. It's exceeded every expectation I could ever think of. And the fact that we're continually getting really amazing guests, right, signing up to the show. So I'm, I mean, for me, I'm just quite, I'm in awe of everything that's going on. And I have to thank the team behind the scenes, on the show, everywhere, for the exceptional work that you guys have done. And I, I mean, every week I look forward to it. And I look back at my own career, right? I've had, what, 25 years of it, of working. And I've never had time to put my head above the desk to see what's going on around me. And this is the first time I'm actually having fun. I'm enjoying what I'm doing. I get up every morning and I say to myself, right, what we got for today? And even my family seem to think, why? Why are you so excited every day? What's going on with you? So, yes, I'm happy. Energy, yeah. yeah, I think it's been fantastic. And I, I think it's you know started ticking up some of the boxes of what we we're hoping to do like you said the the goal is to be able to connect people and, and to bring people whether it's finding people who have had similar experiences getting in contact with people who if, if you tried to build your own little black book it would take you years to get connected to the ceo of verizon but you know we, we've been able to use the show as hopefully a bit of a platform to start creating those opportunities um i, I think ronan last week even said you know if, if you're there you know connect with me on linkedin so now you can use that as a little intro and go hey i saw you on the network effect um but it helps to be a humble yeah. person as well right you've got personalities everything yeah. and so you know whilst we can get guests on the show 
I, we are really selective about who we bring on the show because it's not just about being successful. It's actually having the personality, the charisma that goes with it, and something to share with the audience that when you actually go out and talk to them and the audience come back to you, you're open to that connectivity as well. So I think you know everyone we've spoken to, everyone who's been on the show so far, have been so supportive, have been very much on board, and I think that's, that's the critical part of it yeah. Um, yeah. because that's what networking is about. And I think the variety of guests we've had has yeah. been fantastic as well. It just shows, you know, when, when you're growing a company, scaling a company, crossing markets, you know, there's so many different pieces to the puzzle, so many different individuals you may need to help. You know, we've had successful founders, we've had investors, we've had PE, VC, we've had CEOs, and we've got a great roster to come, su more successful founders sharing their stories, professionals. And I think the thing that you touched on there about the fun element, that's been a big part of this, you know. We're a business, we help companies grow, there's a lot of serious topics, but the beauty of this is just the fun. We're in a studio <laughs> where, you know, you, if, everyone's, if anyone's been watching every week, you'll have seen the evolution of some of the backgrounds. You know, we've now got network effect mugs, <laughs> you know, we're, we're live Big in London, time. this is literally yeah. a win. No, it's not a win. <laughs> I don't think anyone has that view, unfortunately. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's been really nice. It's a helicopter, maybe, yes. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> we're, we're looking forward to to doing more so if you have ideas um, obviously we we think the great country debate which we'll come come to later in this episode is, has been a, a great little feature if you've got any ideas we're, we're happy to hear them and to keep us sort of evolving um, and yeah it's been great to obviously connect with everyone I, I know Cheryl's constantly in the audience Linda Bo Kevin um, a whole host of, of people sorry I can't sort of sit there and name everybody <laughs> but it, I really appreciated everybody sort of connecting in the group and saying hi uh, um, so yeah, we really appreciate it. We had our first networking event um, last week, I think it was, and, and one of the one of the sort of weird things was I was going over and chatting to people and saying, "Hi, I'm Ben. You know, who, who are you? Where where are you from? <laughs> Have you joined us today?" And they go, "Oh yeah, I know you. You're on the network event." <laughs> so, famous. Yeah, exactly. I was a bit like so people knew me and I didn't know them, which, yeah. uh, which is a bit weird. But um, yeah, good fun. That's now, the beauty I, I of it, isn't it? Exactly. So yeah, um, so, yeah we th thank you all again, and obviously, please feel free to send in some comments. Um, let us know what you've enjoyed over the last fir oh, sorry, first five episodes. Um, we're excited to, to keep going. We've, we've got a good roster of guests coming up and we'll literally just discuss Powerhouse discussing. of guests coming up, actually. The guests are getting better and better every week yeah. and quite shockingly. Some of well. them are out of this world, you might say. Um, <laughs> yeah. Keep an eye out for that. Um, but yeah, so I guess just for today's episode, we're going to jump into the normal format of an interview in a moment. We'll, we'll let Asma do an introduction. We've also got the great country debate where Zane, myself, and Siraj are going to have a debate on the, some of the best countries to expand into. And hopefully Zane will come away with the win as he hasn't got a, a gold <laughs> on the board yet um, as they're in the Olympics. But what are we covering off today? Uh, just to quickly add to that, if anyone wants to give some sympathy votes, yeah. uh, more than happy to take. Them. But yeah, we're yeah. discussing three interesting countries today. So we're looking at Central America. So if you're interested in going to Nicaragua, Costa Rica, or even Panama, <laughs> then tune in shortly in a few minutes. I'm not sure this is quite a Panama. It's yeah. not white or cream. No. Close enough. Right. You can see he's putting in the effort. I didn't bring any props today, so, uh, so we'll have to give him our votes. Um, but yeah, I guess to start off with, Asma, you've got some interview guests today. Uh, who are you yes, speaking to? Yes, absolutely. So this week, like no other, any other week, we've got some amazing guests. We've got two brothers, actually, today. Um, and so just to give you a little bit of background, I mean, Normally, sometimes, you know, these two guests that we're bringing on today, they're actually super, super talented. Um, 
And I've met them a couple of years ago um, uh, at, a, at a judge, when I, while I was a judge on a show. And um, the interesting thing is they're so technically intelligent and so super, I, I guess, you know, they are so talented in all their ways, but they're not these two people that you would obviously see in a public eye as much. And I thought with the amount that they've achieved and the story they have to tell and what they've built and how they've actually sold their business into one of the largest companies in the world is quite intriguing in itself. And I wanted to bring them on the show today to really talk about their journey, to talk about what they've created and to really showcase themselves um, and so everyone can hear and be inspired by their story. Um, so without further ado, let's meet our guests. Thomas, welcome to the show. Thank you as well. Hi. Lovely to, Great see, to you see you. Again. So I just wanted to set the scene really to just to tell our audience really how we met. So going back to 2016 now, so obviously five years ago, yeah. and Thomas, it was you that I met. Uh, yeah. I was invited to this uh, um, this well fastest growing 50 fastest growing companies in India, right? And you were in that competition. I was a judge on the panel. And we were sitting there day in and day out, you know, listening to these pitches from companies coming in. And in walks Thomas with his little idea right on his pitch. And he's talking through um, what, you know, the, the company that you've created, Doc's Wallet. And suddenly in my mind, right, I can see it ticking. And as soon as he finished his pitch, I was itching. I had Santander with me. I had what, uh, one of the big four that were sitting next to me. I had the mayor of London's office sitting next to me. And as soon as Thomas finished his pitch, I ran out the door and I started running after him. <laughs> and I said, wait, 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 this is an amazing business. I want to invest in this. And I remember that's how the conversation kicked off. Correct. And then what happened, and I have to tell the audience this, is I did follow him and I did get introduced to Avira and I did want to invest because I'd just come out of my previous company and, and it got acquired. And then, you know, something or other didn't happen and I didn't quite go through to the investment. But then what happens? They get acquired by VFS. So there's a missed opportunity for me, right? Um, so guys, thank you so much for being on the show. And I'd just like to kick okay. off really by asking you to tell us a little bit about Doc's Wallet, what you've created, and then we can talk about your journey. Sure, sure, Asma. Uh, you know, um, as far as Doc's Wallet is concerned, you know, it's something like a bank account, but the difference being instead of you put your money that the government gives you, it's just documents that you can store. And these are legally recognized as electronic documents in places that you go. Um, so historically, we would have a wallet that would contain your driver's license and, you know, maybe a property ownership or even a car ownership, all in, in physical formats. And that's when we added the Doc's wallet into the idea and say, look, all this information that's on paper can, also, can re really be electronic and you don't need that real piece of paper in your hand. So being a banker and combining the paperwork issues that people faced, we sort of put one and one together and, uh, you know, we just said, okay, let's let's uh, bring this on board. And, and we launched Stocks Wallet as an electronic repository for all the information about yourself. This is credentials and identity. Mm -hmm. So that's that's the you know the, the shortest way to put Docs Wallet across. Yeah, and I think, you know, for people who are listening who don't quite understand the concept, I guess the reason why I'm so excited about it is because people don't understand the complexity behind it. And just to kind of give a little bit of context, when anybody goes anywhere, you know, if you're kind of even when you're opening a bank account or if you're going into another country or if you need any kind of verification to get your documents legalized is a mammoth task. You have to go to foreign embassies. You have to go to foreign offices. You have to go through red tape. You have to even spend time and you have to pay a lot of money and you have to get that. 
Now, we all understand fintech quite simply, you know, the simplicity of what the banks are doing in terms of simplifying banking. But no one, and I think what you've created is quite genius, ahead of its time, and ahead of, I would say, if people were thinking of doing something like that, it would probably from now onwards. But you guys have been doing this for years, right? So you are super ahead of what you've created. And I guess, Ivira, you just said you're a banker, and, and Thomas, you, you've got a you know, KPMG Big Four background. What made you want to become entrepreneurs? Why did you leave that world and then take a risk in, in, in entrepreneurship? Uh, yeah, great question. I think, you know, it's, it's an, it's, it's, I think entrepreneurs always like a feeling that you really can't ignore. Uh, it's like an emotion, right? You really, can't, you really can't hold it on for too long. If it has to happen, it must happen. And, you know, coupled with the use case where one customer, we were, we were working on a bank loan and the customer said, I, we asked the customer, can, we, can you give us this paper? And he said, why don't I just give it to you electronically? And then I had to say, no, the bank does not allow us to take papers electronically. And then that got us thinking, why not? Mm -hmm. So I think coupled with that urge and, and, the, and the concept and the excitement that happens because some product or service is not there, that you identify that vacuum at a particular point of time. And, and then it's just, you know, you really can't hold that yourself back anymore. Uh, it's it's uh, more of uh, autopilot from there on. And Thomas would agree. And that's when we decided in 2010, yeah, you know, we both put a job. Well, you're both brothers, right? So Thomas, uh, uh, obviously, Avira. So I'm going to ask you, Thomas, whose idea was it? I mean, who's going to take the credit for that? It's definitely Avira's credit. And <laughs> uh, the reason why I joined him was once you, when he ran the idea past me, uh, the next time somebody came for, uh, you know, your KYC document, I said, it's, it's not just once or twice, you go through it like two or three times a month. And even if you're in the audit field, it's a day in, day out affair, uh, starting from your bank confirmations itself. Nothing was digital then. So we had the internet and the emerging markets were just opening up and it was an ideal time yeah. to jump into the journey. No, brilliant. And so I guess then just kind of talking about the actual product itself, it requires, so, you know, there are companies that will have an idea, they will build something, they will offer a service, and they'll just get on it and very much in their own control about building. And it's usually in their control if they can get the finances. But this business that you've created, you need to contact governments right the mammoth yes. task that it is now contacting governments <laughs> is really tough i know because i know i've been there and i've done it and not only is it tough to get to the right people the decision making process is also extremely lengthy how did you manage to overcome those roadblocks um good question asma so you know one of the so we were incubated iit madras uh, in 2010 and there was a gentleman called Professor Anand who was heading the, uh, you know, the uh, IIT at that time. And he was mentioning about his issues and his, his problems on how to get things across to his IIT because, again, it's a government control entity. So he told us that, I mean, it was, it was, a, it was a, you know, public uh, you know, a program where he told that, you know, whenever I wanted something to be done, I put this note across and say, look, um, if it's a yes from all you guys, it's just simple yes. But if it's a no, I would like you to really write the reason or prepare a full-fledged paper on why it's a no. Mm -hmm. So, so after he said this, every single answer that every single proposal that he kept across became a yes automatically. Nobody, you know, really went and uh, spent time on preparing that document and why it's a no. 
So whenever we went to the government and we asked them, look, if it's a no, it's great. But if you could just call the people around you just to compile a paragraph or a, or a, or a page uh, just to know why this can't be accepted, that would be grateful for us. So the, the head of the organization obviously said, you know, there are a lot of people who are saying, no, why don't we just put this up? And, and it just turned around. Everybody started saying yes, uh, you know, because they didn't want to write the entire uh, paragraph or the page. Uh, as to why this proposal was not allowed. So because, you know, they had a deadline of, let's say, a week or 10 days. And that's how we, we really solved it, you know, uh, asking to write a paragraph or real detailed proposal whenever somebody says no, it, it's a it's a real big headache for everyone. So that's how they know it's got a yes. <laughs> so that's right. a secret. Well, that's very clever, actually. Very clever way of doing it. So, Thomas, I mean, how come you did the pitch and not Avira? So if it was his idea, right, and you are... So just tell us a little bit about your role first within the Docs Wallet on the early days, and then what led you to do the pitch instead of Avira? Uh, so I'm, I'm, I was handling the entire financial aspects as well as uh, a good amount in business development as well. So one foot in finance and one foot in business development. I believe Avira was having another sales pitch with the government uh, at that point of time, where you know your your client is more of a bread and butter than uh, than the competition. So I stepped in uh, because I was there at Bangalore as well at that point of time. Right. Okay. Now it's interesting because obviously we met you later on in Dubai, uh, Avira. And yeah. your ambition at that time was that the Dubai government were getting heavily involved, right? So the Middle East government, I mean the Saudi government, those. The governments in the Middle East are the toughest to infiltrate in terms of being able to get them the buy-in to, to the concept that you had because, again, you know, globally, the business and the, the, the actual vision and the proposition and, and the opportunity for your business was vast. It's not just a small business. Um, and then to, to go in with the toughest governments first, how was that? And, and, and how far did you get with it? Because obviously, you know, you got acquired pretty rapidly. Um, so I'm going to ask you a little bit about that afterwards. But, you know, what happened when you went into the Middle East? So there was this entity called Smart Dubai, which did invest in us. And uh, they have they picked up a small, very small stake. And we're still uh, during that time, 18, 19, we were still in talks with them. And that's when the UAE sort of declared that they're going to become a paperless uh, yeah. and, uh, you know, a country by uh, 2021. Of course, the COVID sort of slowed that down. But the, all the policies were in the right direction. So sometimes to implement the technology, you would need to make a few changes in the policy and the rules and the regulations, which is still going on. And and with VFS uh, and, and, and this partnership, you know, it, it's probably uh, still on the way to announce a new, um, you know, area such as, you know, infrastructure like the banking services, like a digital locker mm -hmm. or a paperless document service. So it was tough because you, you and, and but it's lucrative as in if, if one government adopts it, the benefits were like, you know, extremely uh, huge, right? You know, you're looking about, at least 5 million customers on an annual basis, mm -hmm. uh, spending about $25, $30 a year on the product um, and, and to become one of the players. So the, so the, so the um, advantages or the, the benefits were lucrative. So you, you really did spend some time on it mm -hmm. and it's still on, by the way, we, could, we, we would see some action happening pretty soon. Uh, but yeah, it, is, it, was, it was the most lucrative and you, know, the, you probably had a one-stop shop for approvals rather yeah, than yeah. going to many countries, yeah. So one would think you're, you're doing really well. You were doing really well at the time, right? So you were going into these markets. The governments were being, in, you know, interested in your concept. There wasn't anything like it in the market. You know, you were bringing innovation into a space that actually needed it, and it was kind of very well overdue. It was simplifying the process. It was making it more efficient. So yeah, all all the things that I can say. I understand your business. That's probably why I can say it. Why 
did you then not continue to grow your business and expand globally yourselves? And what, what, what made you sell it? So, yeah, um, I think so at that time, VFS was doing about 25 million applications a year. They had offices in more than 130 countries at 2,500 locations. So to, to grow to that scale um, and to have that kind of a reach, it's, it's literally going to be, you know, a, a long run and the investments required will be huge. So we sort of did the math and we sort of plugging in, you know, 25 million accounts a year and doing the KYCs and plus uh, having offices in 130 countries with our people there as well. And pitching to any client is like immediate. And, you know, you have the local resources, you've got people and the time just before the COVID, we were closing a couple of Latin, Latin countries for the digital locker itself that had a population of 50, 60 million, uh, you know. So the idea was to serve as much as people as we can. Uh, of course, the numbers, you know, you, you increase the, the user base and you reduce the sort of price point. But ultimately, that's the whole game, right? A few cents and, a, and a, maybe a billion users is really the key for any of these startups. Uh, Thomas would agree. Yeah, definitely, because leveraging on VFS brand and getting to the markets, uh, it, it will definitely be easier because their presence is strong. They, like as mentioned earlier, you did uh, the government contracts uh, and they're experts with getting government contracts. Yeah. Okay. And so I guess then, I mean, obviously I've never asked you this question, but I'm going to ask you live on air that, uh, can we know what you sold it for? <laughs> or is that not, is that private? Can the CFO tell us? <laughs> I, I wish I could, but unfortunately, we, the confidentiality clause restricts us from saying it. <laughs> That's fine. Yeah. So, you know, friends and family have supported you with funding at the early stages, right? So when you were entrepreneurs, you left your jobs, you went into the world of entrepreneurship, you had this idea, it evolved and, you know, a fantastic idea it was. And they helped fund your early days. How was funding for you? Can you tell us a little bit about the challenges you experienced? Just so for our listeners who are, I mean, a lot of companies obviously go out for funding. This is one of the hardest tasks. We've gone through a pandemic. We've gone through all kinds of things. And to, to make entrepreneurial successful, I mean, you can have the ideas, you can be talented, you can be super skilled, but the money runs out pretty fast. So what can people do to keep going? Yeah, so I think initially the the, the friends and family invested in us and not really the company. That's how it is. You know, the friends and family will, will not probably know what they're putting their money into. They're putting the money into the people and that's how it works. Mm -hmm. uh, scaling from there, I think you have to, you know, we were in a very different market uh, that did not exist at that time. And it was a very niche market and they required a little bit of, you know, we were looking to pitch to governments, which were very risky as far as the venture capitals were concerned. But um, as we mentioned, we were able to get the revenues up and running and, you know, we were able to move profitable. But the other ventures where you literally look at burning money, if the markets are there, uh, that's going to be a little bit probably, I would say, easier rather than pitching some of a pitching a product that you're going to sell to government. So which was which really did not fit into many government uh, venture capital investors portfolios. If you really look at it today, very there would be very few portfolios that actually sell to governments unless you really, really crack the business. And VFS was also somebody who was selling to the government. Yeah. Their experience and their expertise and their entire uh, you know, operations comes from servicing governments globally. So we saw it as a natural pitch to finally find somebody who understood what we were doing. And it could be a little lot, it could be very lucrative to go after the government business versus seeing it as more of a risk uh, than, than a reward. So I think it was, it was a natural fit for all of us. 
Right. And so, you know, this was your own business. And I can talk because I've got experience of being acquired, right? So you you kind of have a personal, emotional connection to the business. Um, what you build is completely unique and only kind of your team understand it. And whilst I can understand that when you get acquired, there are other skill sets and other things that come part become part of it. How did it, what was the experience like for you? Because you're still with, you're with VFS. You are working there. You are growing this. You are building this out. What does it feel like after the acquisition? I mean, do you lose control? Tell us about your experience. Um, yeah, so I think um, I'll go for the first half. Thomas can put on the other side as well on the finances. But I think, you know, when you're in a startup, you're really, uh, I would say, more um, of, of, you know, uh, it, I wouldn't call it indiscipline, but it's it's more of, uh, you know, every day it's, it's a tough process to go ahead. And when you get bought out by a company, which again is owned by a private equity, there's a lot of focus on the financials, on the costs, and it's it's not scaling at any cost, right? And there's a lot of, uh, um, you know, focus on the profitability. There are a lot of things you cannot do, even though it's it's really, uh, you know, lucrative because the balance sheet or the profit and loss uh, says say something else. So I think that merger of both the idea and the discipline and and the historical business process that the company brings in this is helps this sort of helps you to scale and i think we're all on it right so we did a lot of innovations we did a lot of you know thought process with a lot of technologies but this allows you to scale and scaling is a different ball game altogether you can invent something you can bring it to the market you can service a few people uh, but taking it to a few million people is going to be a different whole ball game and that's what we're seeing here and that's why we're relying on vfs expertise uh, say, how do you go from, you know, five applicants, 10 applicants to 25 to 30 million in the less than, you know, five years or 15 years or so. So Thomas would also, you know, look at giving input on that because he's working on the business development piece yeah, on the, on the business development side. Yeah, I mean, before the acquisition, every day was a hustle. Now it's <laughs> not that much uh, because your backend is uh, your support services, such as your finance, HR, everything is taken care of, uh, which we didn't have before. So it's it's more less uh what, what uh, it's not that as co as complicated as it was before but it, it's it's really a thought process you know before jumping into a project or before jumping onto a client uh, they, we really do a cost benefit analysis which uh, which was not done when we were a startup yeah i mean I, you know the thing is with you guys right is that you were the top 50 companies selected for this judging competition. Now, out of millions, and I'm not talking about out of hundreds, out of millions and millions of scouting, scouring, research that was undertaken to be shortlisted for this event that we were part of in five years ago, your top 50, and this is fastest growing in terms of revenue and in terms of growth potential, in terms of everything else. And I remember in the room, because I was a part of the judge, right, so the small group of judges and how they raved about your company. It's a massive decision, knowing the superpower that you have to creating something big, to have just decided we're going to give it away at such an early stage. I understand the scaling, I understand all of that, but it was so soon into your business journey that it just seems like a really, really tough decision. I mean, was it a tough decision? Was it a family decision or how did it work? Yeah, so, you know, I think the, the, there were two aspects to it, right? One is, uh, you know, there were investors, there were families, there were people invested in the company for about nine years. 
So they're, you know, waiting for a profit to sort of uh, come back for the exit. Didn't seem uh, quite likely. Uh, but, you know, you know, if, if you look at most companies are not profitable, even, even during the growth times with still scope. But we found it sort of, uh, you know, it, you know, we, we had a responsibility to return back the money to the investors. And we say, hey, look, the only way you could do that is to exit. And all of us took a constant decision that, uh, you know, we do, we can exit. And the, the, obviously, the risks of the business came down. The rewards also went up because you now have a platform to scale as much as you want. So we, we sort of weighed the propositions of let's what do we look at like next five years? You could attract 25 million customers, maybe make $10 a customer as a profit, etc. And that's how you you could scale. And you probably end up owning this almost the same percentage of the profits that what we have here. And then we weighed on the other side. I said, look, you know, it's all, all the same. We could do that in a year or two versus, let's say, like seven years. So most of the investors got a decent return on on the acquisition. It was it was a good return on the investments, and it, we found it, you know, uh, responsible to sort of liquidate that. And for every CEO and every startup founder, uh, investment investors relations becomes very important. It becomes very important for us to pr- protect their money, and it can't be a situation that you're going to risk everything for the purpose of growth. So when the time came, uh, so we got an option to return the money to investors. That was that is that is priority number one for every start founder, right? To return the money to the investors, and that's the decision that we took. Uh, and and I, I found I found I found that more you know achieving than you know doing scaling on the business or the things that we planned earlier. Returning money to investors was the most fulfilling thing that we ever did. I mean, ever felt. So that's, that's why we took yeah. Well, that's very good of you. And I'm sure I, I wish that a lot of other people thought like that. But obviously, um, in your case, you've been very considerate. And, you know, excuse me, my my headphones just popped out of my ear there. So I'll just put that back in. Um, so just one other question I have for you. Uh, actually, well, a couple of questions just before we close. One thing that sort of stands out to me, so when I set up to do my business, and obviously I have a similar background where I was working and then I became an entrepreneur, and there are defining moments in your journey, right, when you come. So I never set out or planned to do a business back then. It was by chance that it happened. You know, I I came across a client that had a need, they had a problem, I fulfilled the solution, and then before I knew it, it just exploded. So were there defining moments in your journey that you can look back at now and tell us or share with us what those defining moments were? Yeah, for me, it was, you know, the, the customer on the other side who said, why do you need a piece of paper for you to process my bank loan? Why do you need, a, you know, this printed yeah. document that you needed? Why can't you just process with some physical documents at that time? And that was the real question that, you know, everyone is so hellbent on, you know, replicating processes and checklists and say, look, let's think out of the box. Let's help a few customers to do their travel, to, to form the loan applications and all of, a lot of other services using electronic documents versus paper documents and here we are uh, you know today we are the largest and you know uh, movers of transcripts from india uh, to the us electronically we replaced the fedex and dhl process of sending applying documents so i think the defining moment was when one customer asks you for a service um, and and it can't be solved then and there but then you realize that you know a million or a billion people face the same problem. So it was one customer called. I don't know if that person would be still there, or I could probably reach back. I don't remember. But uh, that was a defining moment when the customer asked you the questions, and you really have to go and figure out: um, is this really a problem that can be scaled? So that was a defining moment for for me. And, right. and Thomas, of course, yeah, this KPMG, you know, <laughs> a bank firm, uh, you know, his audit processes 
was also a problem. So we have all this. So we all faced, I think, the verification issue mm-hmm. uh, when, when, when something was presented to us in paper. So I think that's, that's the key. Okay, brilliant. And so what's planned next for both of you? You're now with VFS, you're growing rapidly. You Instead of selling to a few hundred customers, you're selling to millions and billions of customers. What's next? So I think, you know, after the pandemic, a lot of importance gone to contactless and paperless. You know, for example, would you go to an airport and hand away a passport and would the passport officer be looking at these passports, you know, day in and day out, hundreds, five hundreds of these paper documents being interchanged? Um, a lot of opportunity to today exists for digital identity. The same way what FinTech is doing for banks, digital documents and digital identity is, going, is at the cusp of you know revolution. And I think VFS can be a part of that because of largely our presence and the contract that we have. And we're looking at a time maybe in the near future where you could travel between, let's say, the UK and India or Dubai with just a smartphone, um, no passports, no papers. Uh, no, of course, today we have boarding passes and those tickets electronically, but uh, we're mm-hmm. looking at that kind of a situation the next, uh, you know, maybe uh, a year or so. And we're working on such projects with some, you know, governments across the board to sort of change the entire way uh, the passports are issued, the, the way they sell. And, and it's finally the consumer, right? What, what, what all can the person do with their phone? And that's the whole idea behind the wallet and Doc's wallet. And, and, and now it's VFS Doc's wallet. So I think this powerful combination is um, the way that people travel make make real revolutionary changes in that sector. So Avira and Thomas, right, I brought you to the Network Effect show. I want to be on this journey where I can use my phone to travel anywhere in the world to any country without my passport. So you're not going to forget me, right, in this. I want to know this project that you've got going on. Uh, I've done, obviously, we're doing lots of work with VFS anyway, with lots of the technology that they're introducing and producing. Um, and it's been an absolute pleasure. I think, you know, people don't actually sometimes realize these hidden gems that you guys are uh, of these revolutionary type products that are being produced. And sometimes when you listen to it, no one really understands the concept and I really wanted to kind of bring you guys on board just to showcase that there's so much talent and sometimes people don't value or appreciate the level of talent that there is but what you've created is revolutionary because if we can go in the future and we've been looking ahead of traveling to another country with just our phones then that is transformational so thank you so much I really appreciate it and I'm sure we're going to be doing lots of work together so thank you take care thank you Hey, we're back. Hey, Siraj, welcome to uh, welcome to the panel uh, again. Another uh, amazing interview. Um, I don't know if we'll ever have a well. <laughs> fingers crossed, we never end up having a bad one. But uh, that was uh, yeah, excellent. Brilliant interview. I think you know that's another group of two founders who are actually. Well, we had friends before. This time, we've got family brothers. So, Suraj, I know you. You know your brothers are in business as well. I mean, we, have you ever worked with them before? How, how have you found that kind of process? Uh, not, not in, not in sharing, not in sharing. Actually, being in a business with them, working with them as a, maybe a supplier. But uh, yeah, there's, there's always, you know, what do they say? Yeah, don't work with friends and family. I, I was hoping to hear how they, how they perhaps, um, work, you know, how they deal with some of the conflicts. Um, but. But it's, it's clearly working for them. There's some real gems in that, in, in what they were saying. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm personally looking forward to not having to keep copies of documents. Um, every time you need to fill something in or go to the NHS, you need to find your NHS number or obviously we've got the case of vaccine passports and so forth as a, as a real world problem people are tackling. But yeah, just the little things of keeping track. When I had to apply for my visa, I had to log everywhere I've been in the last 10 years or something, trying to keep track of every little weekend where I took a flight and then and what it was a lot of just me going through emails and old spreadsheets I had and it was a nightmare so I was just like there needs to be a way this is digital and so yeah. I think it's a, a clear winner really. I think the idea is fantastic it was something that's well needed like you just said I applied for a visa to India in the past I didn't end up going because they asked me for every country I've been to in the past I think it was either 10 or 20 years and the list was over 50 and it needed dates flight numbers, all these things. I was like, how am I going to find those? That, that was the trick. I flicked through my passport and was trying to match up stamps because they don't always stamp at the same yeah. place. So I'd have my entry stamped Amsterdam on page three and then the exit would be on page 20 and then there'd be someone stamped over another one and I'm trying to track the dates and yeah. be like, this is where I think I was um, well, nice. these dates. But I think the fact these guys have also had to you know, they have to deal with governments to provide this solution. And it's hard enough scaling your business into different countries and complying with local laws, but then having to go to each government and get kind of permissions, agreements, make sure the processes are consistent. So it's an amazing job they've done. And it's no surprise VFS jumped to, to buy them. Yeah, yeah, I can, I can imagine. I also, I also like what, you know, there's, there's always that, that thing of, do you want a, do you want 100% of something small or do you want a small slice of something really big? And there's always that kind of discussion of should I, should, should we go and rather go and invest or, or be a partner with someone that could make us a lot bigger than we really are. So I think they went for the smallest slice of a much bigger pie and it seems to be working. Exactly. I, I think as well that these times, it's a good time to get as big as possible. Um, take that market share while governments are, are looking to get this stuff sorted, digitized. There's a massive backlog that, you know, the demand for this, I can't imagine, can be much higher. So, yeah, I, I think it's definitely a, a smart move. Um, I mean, so yeah. Just what, one last thing, Ben. Also, another, another little nugget which I thought was clever is that and I guess we can learn from it as well as we scaling our own business. But but the you know the fact that when you when you at scale and you're doing the work to find a solution for one client, when you at scale, that solution's probably going to be appropriate for a million clients. And that's really what he was saying is that that's when that penny drops and there's something there for it. So. Yeah, in the beginning when you only have 10, 20 clients and you're drafting and trying to find a solution for one of them, you might think it's a hell of a lot of work. But all of a sudden when there's 10 million people, all of a sudden you come up with something new and you can scale it really quickly. Yeah, exactly. And I guess the question becomes, which country do you scale into, though, once you've got this amazing problem? So um, that's the question we're going to answer today in the, in the great uh, in the great country debate. Uh, if you haven't seen this before and you're new to this episode, each week we pick three countries from a different area around the world and we just give a small debate. It's meant to be 90 seconds. I don't think I've come in on time yet, um, but quick, quick little benefits. So just so you can sort of uh, get some exposure into some of the other great countries there are. We've talked about a lot of places with amazing options to set up an, a business. And um, we, we've touched on Africa um, before and, 
um, and the in, in India, um, and just some great options, some alternatives there as well. So yeah, we're really excited to sort of jump into it. Um, and I think I'm going first this week as the reigning champion from two weeks ago. Uh, we didn't have an episode last week, um, but yeah, I'm going to jump in first, and I have Costa Rica as my country uh, for this week's great debate. So let's see if I can do this in a slightly timing you slightly better time. Where's the clock? Where's the clock? Yeah, yeah th this doesn't count, by the way, so it's fine. Um, so why do you want to set up a business in Costa Rica? The country has a really varied geography and a warm disposition towards foreign business and supports a very forward-thinking and innovative business climate. So Costa Rica has about a $75 billion GDP, talking US dollars there, and is one of the most stable democracies in the Central American region, boosted by the country's legal security and frameworks. Um, Costa Rica is seeing a massive surge in technology and attracting a lot of startups and businesses. Um, Amazon and Microsoft have just set up their offices um, or set up their roots sorry in the country and just a quick little interesting uh, non-business fact um, Costa Rica has got an impressive renewable energy consumption of 98% of total energy um, generated but back to the business um, setting up a company there's no designated offshore uh, corporate structures in Costa Rica so just based off their um, legal frameworks you can just opt to sell your product locally or wholly overseas and um, Costa Rican companies are often set up in free trade zones or industrial parks um, which benefit from international treaties so if you're a wholly uh, foreign company set up in Costa Rica you've got no sales tax um, no excise tax no capital gains tax no export tax no import duties on capital goods and raw materials and a whole host of other benefits getting set up only takes you four weeks um, three weeks to set up a bank account and it wholly foreign-owned companies fine minimum capital of a dollar um, you do need an authorized corporate service provider to help you get it set up though um, on the workforce side, Costa Rica, the literacy rates are some of the highest around the world. Um, and of the 4 million population, half of that is between the age of 15 to 40, um, which is really good. And last part is on the trade agreement. So trade liber liberalization in Costa Rica is the backbone of their economic diversification. So they've got free trade agreements um, with the US, um, with Canada, Mexico, Panama, a whole host of others as well as trade deals with China and Singapore in the pipeline. So with the proximity to the US, a wealth of diverse resources and vibrant culture, Costa Rica is a prime place to do business. Not bad, yeah. I'll give you a yeah. bit of a yep. mini applause. I think that, that was my fastest yes, well round. Done. Well done. Yeah, <laughs> thank you, thank you. All right, so you've set the scene. So yeah. there's two more countries to come and uh, I think I'm up next with Panama, but I don't know if any of you guys can do this trick. <laughs> <laughs> Extra points, yeah. All right, so Panama. Panama has one of the most vibrant and strongest economies in the world. In fact, in 2020, it was voted the best place, the best country in the world to run a business. So if I don't get all the votes today, we might as well all go home. Um, so I'm going to give you three reasons, three core reasons why it's the best. So number one, obviously, tax. No surprises there. There's no income tax on profits earned overseas. So basically, you may as well just set up your business in Panama 
and then run your operations wherever else you want in Latin America, whether that's Costa Rica or Nicaragua, because there's no restrictions on moving money in and out, no tax, and the official currency is the US dollar. So even the currency is stable. So you can do all your business in every other Latin American country, but base yourself in Panama to maximize profitability and minimize your tax liabilities. So that's reason number one. Number two is low barriers to entry. So you can register a business in just under two weeks. You don't need to be in the country. None of the directors or shareholders need to be in the country. They can be from anywhere. You can even have your board meetings overseas. So super easy. Um, and it's got fantastic privacy laws. So if you own a business, you can remain anonymous. Your objectives can be anonymous. And obviously these days, there's a lot of question marks over privacy, data sharing. But Panama has literally the best corporate secrecy book laws on the planet. So there's also that. And I know people in the past may have said, oh, Panama Papers, issues like that. Well. The government has really cleaned things up in the past five, six years, and it's known as one of the most stable and strongest governments in the whole region. So final reason, Panama has a very strong economy. Um, it had unprecedented growth over the past decade, and in the year before the pandemic, GDP actually grew by 33%. So fantastically strong economy. They've got the Panama Canal, which brings together the Atlantic and the Pacific. Fantastic. As long as it's not blocked. <laughs> as long as it's not blocked. Brings together high quality goods from all over the world. And um, you've got all sorts of sectors, real estate, agriculture, technology, startups. Basically, Panama is the best place to set up in Central America. Excellent, well done, well done. Good yeah. timing, good. Uh, okay, I like the use done. of props. I don't know if we'll make that um, a usual thing, but. There's numbers, there's everything. I've got a tough act to follow. So, anyway, let me start it by saying hola, because that's how they group there in Nicaragua. Uh, you guys need to get into the culture of it. No, but it, look, I, I, I don't want to repeat all the fancy things that you guys have done, but let me and therefore start that. Um, Nicaragua is the center of Central America, which makes it the perfect position because it's it's the it's close to the U.S., close to South America, Mexico. It's in that perfect position right there. Um, from a um, from a setup perspective, there's again there's no need. Um, I need to I put take my specs off. I'm getting old, but I'll bring I'll bring that back into why Nicaragua is so good. Um, there's no tax on exactly what, like you said. There's no tax on um, income earned outside of uh, Nicaragua, and therefore perfect place to set up your tech business if you want. Um, zero um, tax for um, if you set up as in a tree, free trade zone. Uh, infrastructure is really good because the telecoms are privatized and therefore uh, at a really high standard. From an economic point of view, the foreign direct investment grew in the last couple of years from 0.4 billion to 1.06 billion. There's a huge investment in there. And the World Bank has rated um, Nicaragua with the lowest export management costs ever because it's basically free. The population is young, not, I mean, you know, a big 70% of the population is under 40. Um, education level is good. The cost of living is low. It's also a great place to retire. Now, the interesting thing is, you can, they say, come and retire, and the retiring age there is like 45, which makes me at retiring age, which is really interesting. And you can get residency in Nicaragua if you have a monthly income of $750. That's it. If you've got, a, as a person over the age of 45, if you've got a regular income of 750 you get residency in, in there and it's a great place. We won't even talk about the weather and all the beachfront and everything else because you also have that in your countries. 
There I go. That's me. Yeah, very nice. Well done. I was, I was about to say, uh, congratulations to us for nobody playing the travel card and yeah. trying to uh, win the votes via tourism. Um, so uh, if, if you're in the chat, please let us know which of the countries that, that you thought sounds the most interesting for you or sort of potential business or which one you would pick. Um, obviously, hypothetical, if it was a real case situation, definitely come and talk to us and we'll still help you give you some advice as well. But definitely three really interesting options there, I think, for sort of entering the, the yeah. Latin American markets, Central America region. I think you can't really go wrong with any of them. I mean, even geographically, they're all next to each other. So it's Nicaragua, Costa Rica, Panama. They're strategically located. So fantastic options. And I think the beauty of this segment of the show is we kind of highlight countries that people may not necessarily think of. So, you know, if you're looking at, I mean, Mexico is North America, but it's kind of just above, you know, that's a probably a good shout for a lot of people go to. But then, you know, why not Nicaragua, Panama, Costa Rica? Obviously, it depends on your industry and goals. And, you know, come chat to us and we'll tell you if it really is good for you specifically, but yeah. great options. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so I think I think we've got a, some votes coming in for Panama, as well as some su suggestions that we've all done very well, which I think is true. Um, but I, I think should should we agree, Siraj? We'll give it to Zane. Uh, we'll get we'll get him up on the leaderboard as well. I think this will part. Hey. <laughs> Sound effects I for like the, the win. Prop. You, get, you yeah. got it for the props there. Um, yeah, Zane, nice got it for that. That's not even my hat. The, ex the extra benefit votes. Um, so I guess that ties us all up with one each though. So it'll be sort of hopefully an interesting uh, challenge that, yeah, we've got a few Panamas coming in. Cheryl, Asma, Sadie, uh, I hope I'm saying that right, apologies, uh, are all going for Panama. So clear clearly the winner there. Um, we'll come to an interesting round. I don't know when we're gonna end, how many points we'll get, but I guess we'll have to, uh, the Olympics are topical at the moment. I don't know if we'll need a gold medal by the time we yeah. wrap up the first season of the show. Um, but yeah, thank, thank you everybody so much for joining. We hope you enjoy the interview. Um, we hope you enjoyed this section, obviously, as well. And we really appreciate you tuning in. We'll be back next Wednesday at 2 p.m. or every Wednesday at 2 p.m. for the foreseeable future. Probably maybe take a break around Christmas, but we'll, we'll see how that goes. Um, but yeah, thanks so much for joining. We really appreciate it. Uh, if you're catching this later, we're always on YouTube or podcast if you missed anything. So go for, download it and check it out. And yeah, we look forward to seeing you next week. See you Until all next then. week. Thank you.